This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. The Supreme Court takes up a case on Section 230, the legal immunity for Internet platforms, but the justices seem uncomfortable with both the positions advanced by the parties. Welcome, I'm Kyle Peterson with the Wall Street Journal. We are joined today by my colleagues, columnists Alicia Finley and Kim Strassel. Welcome to you both. The case on Tuesday morning at the Supreme Court was Gonzalez v. Google, It is brought by the family and the state of a 23-year-old American student who was killed in a 2015 ISIS attack. And the argument is that Google, which owns YouTube, the video website, aided and abetted ISIS because its algorithms recommended ISIS videos to users. And according to them, that recommendation by the algorithms is not protected by Section 230, this platform immunity that is in U.S. law. And the justices seem to be trying to grapple with a way out of this conundrum. Let's start with Justice Elena Kagan. Every other industry has to internalize the costs of his conduct. Why is it that the tech industry gets a pass? A little bit unclear. On the other hand, I mean, we're a court. We really don't know about these things. You know, these are not like the nine greatest experts on the Internet. And I don't have to I don't have to accept all Ms. Blatt's the sky is falling stuff to accept something about, boy, there is a lot of uncertainty about going the way uh, you would have us go. And let's hear from a justice on the other side of the aisle, proverbially speaking. This is Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Isn't it better for uh, to keep it the way it is for us and Congress to put the burden on Congress to change that? Uh, and they can consider the implications and make these predictive judgments. You're asking us right now to make a very precise predictive judgment that don't worry about, it's really not going to be that bad. I don't know that that's at all the case, uh, and I don't know how we can assess that in any meaningful way. Alicia, what do you make of this case and the apparent dilemma that is facing the justices now as they try to figure out the way that they should rule? So I think there's one issue is how this case and actually the case that's being heard today, which is similar but doesn't actually directly or explicitly involve Section 230, but rather involves whether these plaintiffs can even sue these platforms under for essentially aiding and abetting the terrorists, because it's not clear there really isn't any direct line between what the platforms did, whether the terrorists actually saw any of the videos and whether that actually inspired them to go out and commit the terrorist act. So that's a separate question that's actually at issue in the oral arguments, the Twitter feed, Tamana, that are being heard on Wednesday. So it's a little strange that they're hearing these arguments after they consider the Gonzales v. Google case, which takes aim directly at the Section 230 
which Congress designed back in the days of AOL in the 1990s. And I actually, I shouldn't say they actually Congress designed this. This was actually thrown in. It's more of an afterthought to deal with the issues that were percolating in the courts at the time, roommates and other cases in which companies were being sued for content on their sites because they were exercising editorial control. In some cases, they were being sued essentially as publishers and being held liable for that content. So Congress came in really championed by a few members of Chris Cox, namely to clean up the mess that is happening in the lower courts and to provide protection for these companies. Again, we didn't really have the Google that we did nowadays. And it was more like sites like Craigslist, which people were just posting. The content wasn't so much curated. It wasn't controlled as much by algorithms. But the intent was basically to protect the platforms from being held liable for content on their sites, which they didn't develop, was created by users. And there's really no question whether someone, like, say, if I posted something on Yelp or if I posted something on Facebook, defamatory, I could be sued. But to go back, the intent of Section 230 was to protect these platforms from also being sued, which really allowed the internet to grow into what it is today. And so stepping back, if we were to all of a sudden, I think that what Justice Kagan is getting at, if all of a sudden we were to read Section 230 very narrowly, not to cover the search engine recommendations or, in the case, YouTube recommendations, um, it would really kind of defeat the purpose of Section 230. The opposite argument is, well, this law is actually kind of not clear in many respects. And courts, in some cases, have interpreted it much too broadly. And that's an argument Justice Thomas has made in previous opinions. In this case, it was kind of interesting listening to the oral arguments. That wasn't actually something that he was raised here. He seemed to be a lot more sympathetic to the tech companies. To underline a couple of the points that Alicia made, one is that, again, the case yesterday was Gonzalez v. Google, and it involves this woman who was killed in an ISIS terrorist attack. Google says in its brief that there's no allegation that any Paris attacker saw any ISIS video or that YouTube played any role in bringing about the Paris attack. And so today there is another case being heard, and this one involving Twitter. And the question there is whether the laws against aiding and abetting terrorism even apply to a generic, widely available service that is not directly tied in any real substantial way to any specific terrorist act. So it does seem to me that perhaps one way out of these two cases is to rule that no, Twitter is not responsible for what happens in an ISIS attack, that there's no direct connection to Twitter, which would also apply to the Google case. To underline the point about Section 230, my understanding of the development of that piece of law was that in the 1990s, what happened was there was some cases where if an internet platform did any sort of removing of inappropriate or egregious content, did any sort of that kind of editing at all, it would be held as a publisher of everything on its website. And so it would be liable for any sort of defamation or what have you that it did not take down, which gave the publishers, internet platforms, 
a choice. They could do no editing and let anything bad that they didn't like run wild on their website, or they could do some editing and take responsibility for everything. And that was not a particularly good choice. So that is why Congress passed Section 230. And the provision at law in the case yesterday says, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. And you can hear just in some of the the terms, Kim, in that law that this was passed in 1996. It doesn't mention anything about social media because social media had not really been invented yet. The word blog had not been invented yet. So you heard some of the justices, particularly Justice Kagan, struggling with the idea of we're a court and we're being asked to apply this law that is kind of unclear and uses outdated terms to the modern internet, which functions in a very different way than it did in 1996. Yeah, and to listen to the tech companies, they would make the argument that absent Section 230, you wouldn't even have all of these things that we have today, all the search engines, all the different online platforms that we do. In fact, the tech industry has taken to calling Section 230 the Magna Carta of the internet. And it's why you saw so many giant players out there in tech world file friends of the court briefs on behalf of YouTube in this case, Etsy, Glassdoor, Microsoft, Pinterest, Reddit. And of course, what's happened as the internet has grown, we're no longer talking about websites where people are simply posting things. I mean, think about how rudimentary everything was back in the 1990s we're talking about. I mean, these were really standalone websites where someone might have the ability to post something on there, but it was very, very small world. As the internet has grown, obviously, we now have things like the search engines, YouTube. The additional burden has now fallen on these tech companies to use these kind of algorithms to sort content and get people to where they need to go. For instance, one of the things that came out in the the court, which is interesting, is YouTube gets something like 720,000 hours of content uploaded in a day. How do you sort that out and let people get to what they want? So, of course, they've adopted these algorithms. And that's one of the aspects of this case, which is that the plaintiffs are claiming because they are now taking an active interest and moving people and highlighting or to use the plaintiff's terms, they're auto-generating content, they're amplifying content, they're recommending content. Their argument is that this is now crossed into the line of actually engaging and somehow Uh, and giving people content in a way that makes them a publisher, in essence, and makes them, therefore, liable for what is online. Now, that's a big leap. It's a completely separate question, as Alicia was talking about, about whether or not anyone can prove the people in this case actually watched a video, and that was what inspired them to do it. But it's that bigger question about the functionality of these things and the different tools that they use, whether that house somehow makes it so that Section 230 should essentially not apply. And that is a big question for the court. And I think that's what Elena Kagan was getting to and Kavanaugh was getting to, which is that to somehow now rule that it doesn't would be an enormous shift, okay? It really would be a big deal. And as Kagan said, you don't necessarily have to buy the argument that the sky is falling if they rule that way, but no one can deny that that would be a kind of significant decision by the court that would have 
widespread implications for the everything that we see online these days. And I think that's why you see the court reluctant to deal with it. And as Kavanaugh said, maybe this is something Congress should deal with. Hang tight. We'll be right back. You're listening to Potomac Watch from The Wall Street Journal. Rapid expansion? We're ready. Worker shortage? We're good. Anything can change the world of work. A celebrity buys the company. Depends on who it is. But relax, we've got ADP. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker. Play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. To pick up where Kim left off, another thing I want to point out is that my understanding is that these are neutral algorithms. In its brief, Google says that there are thousands of inputs that factor into these kind of search suggestions, including search history, watch history, location, time of day. The Google lawyer at the Supreme Court said that if you are Googling the word football, the answers that you get from a search engine or from YouTube will differ depending on whether you're in the United States or whether you're in Europe, where the words football mean different things to people. And so there was a a nice conversation with Justice Clarence Thomas, where he said if these are neutral algorithms and the people who are watching cooking videos get more cooking videos and the people who are watching videos about ISIS get more ISIS videos. He has a hard time seeing how Google is liable for that. But it is an interesting distinction, Alicia, because the petitioners are saying that Google has immunity for hosting and posting and publishing these videos. That's clearly in Section 230. But it's arguing that the recommendations, the up next, the autoplays after one YouTube video ends, a lot of times there will be another one that is played right after that. That That is Google's conduct. And what Google's response is, is that those kind of things are inherent in the act of publishing the videos. If you have to have some way to sort this stuff, there are just enormous quantities of videos that are uploaded to YouTube every day. And it's not as if they're going to put them in reverse chronological order. You have to have some way of organizing that through a homepage through recommendations or suggestions from the algorithm, through the up next feed. Otherwise, Alicia, the argument is that the internet would be basically unusable. Right. And this is, again, this is a function publishers do. Like our newspaper, if you go to the WSJ.com website, I mean, we organize content in different ways and increasingly it's becoming more personalized. These are all controlled by algorithms, just like Google's is, in terms of what viewers will see next on YouTube or in terms of the search results on its search engine. The plaintiffs also tried to draw some kind of distinction again between the recommendations and the YouTube videos and the search results. But I think once you start thinking about the practicality of that, well, that's a distinction without a difference because, again, they're, they're both controlled by algorithms. To Clarence Thomas's point about the neutrality, which was a test kind of designed by the Ninth Circuit in its ruling on the case, I mean, I think Justice Gorsuch would probably say, well, this is a judge-made doctrine, and he's probably right, but also proves that in this case, the fact that Google is not actively involved really in promoting these ISIS videos. It might be different if, say, an actual Google editor or someone at Google was involved in trying to promote this content. 
And if the plaintiffs could show that, I think this would actually might be a different case. And if you look back at Backpage, this was a case in which a company was actually kind of actively involved in the sex trafficking, which resulted in the legislation known as SESTA, which created a carve out for sex trafficking content when companies or internet uh, or providers provide essentially knowingly aid and abet sex trafficking. So if the plaintiffs were to actually show that Google were knowingly and intentionally uh, basically recommending these videos, the case might be a little different. But here it's just a neutral algorithm that doesn't distinguish between ISIS videos or cooking videos or puppy videos or anything else. It basically just feeds users what they want. And while maybe you can argue that there's a bug in its algorithms and that they shouldn't be feeding users what they want, but that gets to the underlying issue of the, the functionality of the platforms. They wouldn't be as functional. They would users wouldn't use them as much. You know, they wouldn't benefit as much from them. If the judges were to step in and say uh, these algorithms aren't protected under Section 230, you really would turn the entire internet, you know, on its head. Justice Clarence Thomas, though, we, who we've mentioned a few times, I mean, he was the guy that I thought was most interesting to watch during this argument, because as Alicia mentions, in previous rulings, he has been a little bit of a hawk on extending Section 230 protections. One example that Alicia mentioned is the stuff that the platform knows is illegal at the time that it is it's letting it be on its website. Clarence Thomas has suggested that that should be outside of 230. He has had the same suggestion for content that the platform had some kind of direct hand in creating or curating. If it's something more than just third-party content that the platform has not reviewed and is unaware of its contents. And I do think, Kim, that there are some harder questions that are coming as these systems get more and more sophisticated. And one that Justice Neil Gorsuch raised during the oral argument is what about AI chatbots? Most prominently, ChatGPT has the one that has been blowing people's minds in recent days and months. And what if these companies start integrating those kinds of systems into their search results? So instead of going to a search engine and you get a, a list of links to third-party content, you go to the search engine and you ask it a question and it scans all of that third-party content and it provides you what it thinks is an actual best answer. It starts to raise questions again about how we are going to apply this law from 1996 to these new technologies that were just unimaginable at the time that Congress was considering this. Yeah, this is why what you mentioned about Clarence Thomas is so fascinating, because I think the one question that presents itself at some point is, is there some limiting principle to Section 230? Do you keep it, but are there boundaries beyond which things do fall outside of it? And I'm not sure the court is going to do that with this ruling, because again, the question of exactly what is complex, but there's a lot of things like what you mentioned, Kyle. I mean, what about situations in which, yeah, the tech company and platform in question is deciding what content to send you, has some sort of role in it beyond an algorithm? What about at checks that some of these outfits place on articles or content? Does that somehow, I mean, is, that certainly would be a sort of human interaction and a decision that is being made by the company. And it's a really interesting question as to whether or not 
they are playing a role. We obviously know that these companies do take a role, by the way, in moderation as well. This has been obviously one of the big fights going on in Washington and Republicans who've been very frustrated about what they view as as too much content moderation, at least when it comes to certain political views, conservative political views. So there's going to be more of these as we go along. And that's why I think the best place for this still is Congress. The only thing that's a little bit worrying about that is that right now, these tech companies have managed to annoy everybody in Washington. Democrats think that they routinely don't do enough to take down harmful content online. Republicans, again, think that they're wavering too far into the realm of censorship. And so there is a little bit of a a compact at the moment that something needs to be done on Section 230, but it's unclear that whatever comes out is going to be a very wise solution. It's also unclear how long it's going to take for this to get done. Congress is simply not good at stuff like this. It's only good at spending these days. Any kind of policy debates, it takes forever. And even John Roberts mentioned that in the oral arguments yesterday, that maybe waiting for Congress, by the time that happens, the internet could blow up. But I still think that they are best positioned because you're going to need a lot of thought, a lot of talk with the tech companies to kind of figure out a solution here that updates this for the modern world. Alicia, what's your take on this question of the prospects in Congress for reform? I agree completely with Kim that both parties, at least large elements of them, have turned against the tech companies, but in completely different ways, where many people on the left want Twitter to take an example to take down more posts And many people on the right think that they are taking down way too many posts. And so I can imagine some sort of ancillary reforms or additions to 230 to update the terms that it uses from the old 1990s terms to terms that we would recognize like social media or to mandate transparency or something like that. But Alicia, I guess I have a hard time imagining Congress coming to an agreement that would significantly pare back the 230 immunity. Right. Um, So what we saw a few years ago in the aftermath of what happened with Backpage was that Congress did actually come to a bipartisan agreement to carve out sex trafficking from Section 230's protections. I could potentially see maybe Congress doing something on a terrorist content, maybe, But what would be most helpful would be if Congress actually clarified the terms and what Internet providers and other companies actually deserve immunity protection for. There's a phrase in Section 230 that they would receive protection when they remove lewd, lascivious and otherwise objectionable material. And there's been a lot of debate uh, among Republicans and others whether misinformation is classified or can be classified as otherwise objectionable just because these internet companies don't like COVID or climate information that conservatives are posting and that some of these companies are using Section 230 as cover to essentially act as publishers and act as editors and take down content that simply progressives don't like. Whether Congress can actually get themselves together and actually agree on something, I have a hard time saying because, again, as you point out, that the goals are simply very different on the right and left. The right complains that the companies are censoring too much content. The left says that they're not taking down enough. And by not enough, they mean not just the ISIS videos. What they really mean is material or conservative ideas on climate and COVID in particular, but could potentially 
see how they would expand that to other realms that could affect government policies. So where this goes, I think it's probably going to end up percolating and more cases are going to end up percolating the courts and they're going to have to grapple with these questions, as you mentioned, Chad GPT, the state actor doctrine in terms of whether you know, if governments push or are essentially insisting on companies taking down content, whether that actually falls under Section 230 or and First Amendment issues. But I imagine this is really going to be an issue that is going to stay in the courts rather than actually get it resolved by Congress. Thank you, Alicia and Kim. Thank you all for listening. You can email us at pwpodcast at wsj.com. If you like the show, please hit that subscribe button. And we'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Potomac Watch.